Okay, we got Cheryl, Lindsay, Susie, Renee and Spirit. Renee and Spirit, Renee had a long week of shoots. The poor thing is probably um, sleeping, sleeping, sleeping it off and um, is going to sit this, this episode out. But Lindsay is going to be continuing our conversation around murders yes even though they're not my favorite but i had a fun brendel murder in our last episode and Lindsay's going to talk about a little surprise for us yes so murders are renee's and my favorite and when we go down the mystery route which is always a fun topic a lot of them do include uh, murder the story that I found was like the fourth story that I found, actually. I was not going to do this. And then at like 8 o'clock last night after I finished my first one, which I'll save for another time, I found this and I was like, oh my god, I gotta do this. So this story play takes place in 1991, basically when Cheryl was graduating high school. Wasn't that when your story was from the Brendel's? My Brendel's story was 91 yeah. also. See? We're wow. just connected. That's really Guys, crazy I coincidence. Know. I know. If we had teamed up on the same episode, we could have just called it 1991. There we go. Yeah. Which is actually I not the year I graduated from high school, but close. Okay. And I was a sophomore... And Renee and Susie weren't born. I oh. was. I was. Oh. I was one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although what? Okay. What and Renee month? was because Renee was a little baby. Uh, doesn't say the month yet. It so less than it was month. a good year. It was a. It was a good 91 year. was a good year. Um, when I found the story, I was pretty excited because it's about a writer. It involves mystery, involves intrigue, and involves murder. All the things. All the things we love. So, Joseph Daniel Casalero was an American freelance writer. He was from Virginia and graduated in 1968 from Providence College of all oh. things, which was another like weird coincidence. Oh, um, he liked very mysterious or provocative topics, which is another <laughs> thing that I was like, hey, yes. Yes. Looking into issues such as Soviet naval presence in Cuba, the Castro Intelligence Network, and Chinese communist smuggling of opium, which maybe was Hightower's, like, yeah, I was maybe, say. Where... <laughs> maybe there was something in Providence during that time where there was the... So this was a dude who liked all of these things. Yes, he was looking not... into these things. When he was dabbling in journalism. Okay. So, okay. sorry. Yeah. So that was when he was at Providence College. Yeah. And he, he enjoyed these topics. After not having the most success in journalism, because mm. sometimes it's, it's hard. hard. Yeah. It's very yeah. hard yeah. to do it as a living. In fact, your friend that you lived with in New York, the writer... She she tells you that all the time, like that it's a tough gig, but it's a tough gig, and you have to you have to have it in your core of yes. who you are to keep at it, whether or not you're selling scripts or, or not publishing. You're just still writing. If yes. you're a true writer, you're still writing regardless. All of, the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So he, because he didn't have success, he turned to IT, and this was as you do, as you do. But this was the beginning. This was the late eighties. So, IT was just coming onto yeah, the scene, yeah, yeah. you know, when the computers were the size of ginormous TVs, and uh, you had the dot matrix printers mm -hmm. that were super loud and obnoxious. Well, I don't remember them. Uh, yeah. See, you wouldn't. You She's were seen one. pictures. She's seen <laughs> pictures. She believes I us. know. I've Googled. Yeah. <laughs> it was at his computer IT job where he first learned about the Inslaw case. I N 
S-L-A-W. So in and slaw, like coleslaw. Like coleslaw. And this pulled him immediately back into journalism. He's like, I... I felt like he is of our ilk that he yeah. gets into these, oh my God, I got to research yeah. this more and get into these rabbit holes. Inslaw Inc. is still a Washington, D.C.-based information technology company that markets case management software for corporate and government users. So Inslaw was known for developing Promise, an early case management software system which either stands for, because it was different in a lot of different articles, as the Prosecutor's manage, Management Information System or Project Manager Information System. For the problem, the issue behind this was in 1978, the DOJ, Department of Justice, Justice for some reason journalism was sticking in my head <laughs> and I knew that was not right, um, contracted with the Institute to do a pilot project that installed versions of Promise in four U.S. attorney's offices. Inslaw's founder, William Hamilton, um, was in a previous position with the DOJ and helped develop this program called Promise. Promise was designed to organize the paperwork generated by law enforcement and the courts. So it sounded like way before its time, like something that was a useful tool that married law enforcement information to the court information. After he left the Justice Department, Hamilton alleged that the government had stolen Promise and distributed it illegally. So pirated these programs. Yeah, exactly. Robbing him of millions of dollars. The department denied it insisted they owned it because Hamilton had developed it while working for them. So it's kind of this, like, gray area, but he was at the Inslaw IT company, and then he he developed Promise there, but the, the DOJ is saying before he went there, he developed it at the DOJ. Mm. So they owned it. Was Inslaw his company? I think I believe that he started it. He's, okay. He yes, sorry, he was the founder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as a result of this dispute, Hamilton and the department had been in litigation since 1983. Inslaw won damages in bankruptcy court, but were, it was overturned on appeal. The suit resulted in years of going back and forth on this, several Justice Department internal reviews. Two congressional investigations, side note, one wherein an appointment of a special counsel was done by the then Attorney General, William Barr. Mm. He was George W., sorry, George H. Bush's Attorney General, and now ass-face Trump's. So, yeah, a federal bankruptcy judge ruled in 88 that the department was indeed taken um, that the, they indeed took the software by fraud, trickery, and deceit. So the conspiracy theory developed around this case was that the allegations that backdoors had been inserted into the software so that whoever the Justice Department had sold it to could be spied upon later. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm. So that's where it starts. So yeah, here's the first. Because the whole time I'm like, you're like the project is, management software. Why this is not interesting. Why does the yeah. Department of Justice care yeah. about this random Exactly. Technology? So you had to just get that background information because now it starts to get real weird. That's one of the arms of mm-hmm. the octopus. The major source on the conspiracy theory aspect of the case, both for Hamilton, who was the founder of Inslaw, and later Casalero, who was the American freelance writer who went to Providence College, was this guy named Michael Riconciuto. Sounds like Pasciuto. He was described as, this is going to get you, rogue scientist, weapons designer, platinum miner, and, you know, an alleged crystal meth manufacturer. He sounds what like an amazing, resume. amazing dude, right? Renaissance man. Totally. Yes. Yes. 
So this is where it's like, is this guy believable and trustworthy? Mm, you don't know. But he did back up a lot of the claims that Hamilton already knew from his days at Inslaw and dealing with the government. Rick and Shuto told Bill Hamilton that he had paid $40 million to Iranian officials in 1980 to persuade them not to release the American hostages before the conclusion of the presidential election that saw Ronald Reagan elected president of the United States. So this was a big deal because it was Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan up against each other. And this is the claim now that is known as the October Surprise. So the October Surprise conspiracy theory refers to an alleged plot to influence the outcome of the 1980 um, United States presidential election. Exactly. So the one of the leading national issues during their... Um, debates was that um, the release of the 52 Americans being held hostage in Iran. Reagan won the election and on the day of mm. his inauguration, in fact 20 minutes after his inaugural address, the Islamic Republic of Iran announced the release of the hostages. The but Carter, so the backstory on that is that Carter had negotiated the, the whole entire, entire deal. deal and got no credit for that. It's actually fascinating if you go in and research all of this I in rent. Carter's administration. It's like the most fascinating. Mm. And that's exactly it. So what they did is the timing gave rise to an allegation that the representatives of Reagan's presidential campaign had conspired with Iran to delay the release until oh, after the election God. to thwart President Carter from pulling off the October surprise no. because they think, yeah, because they think that if, because Carter did yeah. negotiate all the release, that if it would have been done before the election, Carter yeah. could have maybe come out. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was such a crisis at the time. Yeah. So to the point where I, as a child, remember what a crisis that was. Yeah. Like it was one of those moments where. Like you every heard. night in the news, like time stood still. Every day that passed was another day of these hostages still in captivity. And people were glued to when when will this end? Because right. it was how many? It was nineteen it was fifty two. Fifty two of them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I I do, I mean, and I was little, like a little kid, and yeah. I remember just family, you know, this is it was a big deal. At I the remember time. I think that I don't remember the news, but I remember people mag because my mom always got People magazine and it was on a lot of the covers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just little I think the other reason why it's so vivid to me is because the flags were half staffed yeah. during that entire time and I remember literally remember in elementary school when the hostages were released. They marched us out to the front, and we had a flag raising ceremony. Ceremony. Wow. I was like second grade, third grade. What year was it? Uh, eighty seven, eighty. So I was eight years old. So I yeah. was in second grade, and Gosh. I remember. And of course, no context for no, I, no. And it, but it, it stays with me to this day that we we all the flag was raised, and I think teachers were crying. That's yeah. what a big deal it was. Wow. Yeah. That's so crazy that's that you, yeah, so this is like, that's why this story was so crazy to me yeah. because it involves history, it involves the government. Rigging elections. Which we know all too well since, wow, Al Gore, I guess, and on, mm -hmm. like, wow. it, it's, Yeah. According to the allegation, the Reagan administration rewarded Iran for its participation in the plot by supplying Iran with weapons. Uh, yeah, the Iran-Contra affair. And by unblocking Iranian government monetary assets in U.S. banks. So basically... Was this the quid start pro of the Contra? I think so. I I believe so. Ollie North and all that yes, jazz. Yeah. Yes, Which... Susie's looking at us with a blank stare. <laughs> we never got there yeah. in my history class. He was a cute guy who was on trial for yes. a really long time. Yes. I, I don't know. I was in college. 
by that point. Or no, what year was it? I don't know. I think you were probably in high school. College, high school. I yeah. don't know. But by that point, I didn't hadn't made the connection, the historical connections. So yeah, that's interesting. After 12 years of mixed media attention, both houses of the U.S. Congress held separate inquiries and concluded that the allegations lack supporting documentation. So that's interesting. And that must be the, I didn't say, but that must be the Iran-Contra hearings because we were young and that's what happened. Um, A filmmaker did do a 43-part docu-series called... The Octopus Murders, which I am getting into. And again, so the stealing of the computers and the backdoor spying from the DOJ is one of the, like, arms. The Iran-Contra stuff with paying off the Iranians with um, weapons, another arm of this weirdness. Mm. And started, it's called, that's what started the Inslaw case, because... Once you went down this slippery slope, you found out all all of the connections. Yes. So in addition to this allegation, Rick and Shudo also claimed in a March 21st, 1991 affidavit submitted to the court in the Inslaw case that he had modified Inslaw software at the DOJ um, at the behest of foreign government or at the behest of the DOJ to be sold to dozen of foreign governments to spy on them. So then, these modifications, this is another, like, wait, what? These modifications allegedly took place at the Cabazon Indian Reservation near India, California. Because the reservation was sovereign territory, where enforcement of U.S. law was sometimes problematic, Rikinshuto further claimed that he had worked on weapons programs there for the Wackenhut corporation, a special British security group, such as powerful fuel air explosive. This Capazon Indian Reservation, during this time when he was doing this, had three unsolved murders. So my theory, because you couldn't find a lot to connect it, was that someone was poking around in this business. And it is interesting that they chose the Indian Reservation to do this so... It could be, you know, side, you can't really prove. There's no regulation there. Yeah, and the government is like, "Mm, do it over there. So the the other weird timing, though, is after after he submitted this affidavit, eight days later, on March 29th, 1991, Rick and Shudo was arrested and later convicted for distributing meth and methadone and he said he was set up to cover up his story. So, who knows? Yeah. He could be a he meth was sketchy. Person. He was sketchy. He was sketchy, so is he credible? Mm-hmm. Is he a credible Or did was it a total cover witness up? in all of this, or was it a cover-up? Did they choose somebody intentionally who was sketchy because they knew he could it, be... Yeah, mm-hmm. he could be a patsy. Mm-hmm. 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 Like, let's choose this, like, vulnerable guy. Let's offer him money, but... We know he's got his hands in all of yeah. these other things so that when we need an alibi and we need somebody to take the fall for this. Right. <gasps> right? It's twists and turns. It's I the octopus. I love this one. I know. So in the summer of 1990, Casalero, the writer, arranged to meet Bill Hamilton, the Inslaw founder, expressing an interest in pursuing the Inslaw story. So this is Hamilton left Inslaw. He... Um, sued sued the government he was whistleblowing on them saying hey they're spying on you they're selling my software illegally so I didn't get money so I'm gonna freaking tell the world that they're spying on you Hamilton gave Casalero a 12 page memo Rick and Shudo had written detailing the allegations so Hamilton and Rick and Shudo did were in contact because they're like I got screwed, you got screwed, you know, let's talk about what we both know, and then Rick and Shudo got put in jail. Hmm. The moment that Casalero got his hands on this memo with its maze of illusion and reality was the moment that 
Danny Casolaro's life changed and he began his descent into obsession. This was 1990. Journalist. Journalist. Yeah. Danny Casolaro. A year later, in August 1991, Danny Casolaro phoned Bill McCoy, a retired criminal investigator. I'm assuming this was someone he was working with because mm. this was kind of the last phone call that they can track right. back. To tell him that Time Magazine assigned him a huge article about the octopus. And that he was working, Danny Castellaro was working also on the book outline about the subject. Which, oh my god, that would have been amazing. Do we know Imagine. where Danny was living at this time? I think he was in, yeah, he was in Virginia. Okay. So I think, I'm not sure exactly where in Virginia, mm -hmm. but he was born in Virginia, mm -hmm. went to Providence College. Yeah. Came back so to Virginia. DC area. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so on August 6th, he left for Martinsburg, Virginia. Side note, Martinsburg, Virginia, I've been to before. I believe it's very close to DC. It, like the Potomac is right there. Mm -hmm. And then you could like yeah, yeah, travel yeah. over to go to the go to DC. And on August 9th in Martinsburg. He met Honeywell engineer William Richard Turner at the Sheraton at about 2.30, Turner says. He gave Casolaro some documents, and they spoke for a few minutes. Now, there's not much more on this, and the only thing I can think of is that he was another, like, asset in finding out this information. And Honeywell engineer, I'm sure it had to do with the, compute, the software IT software. Witnesses reported that Casolaro spent the next few hours at a Martinsburg restaurant. A bartender there told police that he seemed lonely and depressed. The police further learned that Casolaro was seen at Heatherfield's, which I think was a bar. Oh no, it was a, yeah, it was the cocktail lounge at the Sheridan at around 5 p.m. with a man described by a waitress as maybe an Arab or an Iranian. Jesus Christ. At about 5.30 that night, Casolaro happened to meet Mike Looney. This is another person. I, you can, we'll make our assumptions about. Who rented the room next to Casolaro's room, 5.17. They chatted on two occasions, first at about 5.30 and then again at about 8. Looney later explained, Casolaro said he was there to meet an important source who was giving to him what he needed to solve this case. According to Looney, Casolaro claimed that his source was scheduled to arrive by 9, which is interesting to me because at 5.30, this waitress saw the Arab or Iranian. So I don't know if they were all meeting up mm -hmm. and the Arab and Iranian was a source as well, but it seems too weird that... This involves Iran. Mm -hmm. He met up with an Arab guy, mm -hmm. supposedly early, but his real source was coming at nine. Mm. Around that and okay, around that time, Casolaro left Looney, explaining that he had to make a telephone call. He returned a few minutes later and said that his source might have blown him off. Casolaro and Looney talked about until about nine thirty. At about ten, Casolaro bought a coffee at a nearby convenience store, and that was the last time anyone reported seeing him alive. Okay, who's Looney again? Looney is a character, to me, that it, it, it's super weird to me. Mike Looney was, happened to be in the room next to Casolaro, and happened to be talking to him at the bar at the Sheridan, and just made friends. Okay, so... What are the odds? Uh, okay. What are the odds? Okay. And he also happens to be the person who is describing the timeline of events for As, Casolari's last day, basically. Correct. Because the bartenders yeah. and the waitresses were probably yeah. like, yeah. he was talking to this guy. Yeah. Go talk to yeah. this guy. So we're to believe that he was just a random guy staying, we're made, in air quotes, made to believe that he just happened to be a random guy staying at the hotel who happened to be chatting with him while he was in the hotel bar and right. Correct. Now, from what I can tell, Looney literally is not reported about again. So 
red flag city for me that he would be not, like, oh, I can give you the timeline. And I was in the room next to him. 517. That sounds like there's a lot of rooms in this place. And why, and the other thing too is why would this guy Looney know that Castellari was going to meet somebody important at 10 o'clock? It seems like if you were investigating a story like that, you wouldn't we tell wouldn't be telling anything. anybody anything. Yeah, so he probably knew. I completely before. agree with you. Yeah. You wouldn't, even if you got, and, and Castellaro wouldn't have gotten drunk because he, this right. was the story of his life. L story of he his was, life. He was the last seen getting a coffee. Yes. It's like, so yeah, even if drinking. he drinking, I bet he wasn't even drinking, he, really. Probably not. So that's a good point. The, the last thing he was doing was getting a coffee. So that means at 10 o'clock at night, who gets a freaking coffee yeah. at 10 o'clock at night? So... He was either staying up later to do, because most of the people said that he was obsessed with this case. Right. So he was probably writing more that night. And the Arab at the bar at 5 o'clock or 5.30 was still, that and Mike Looney are my two, mm -hmm. like, red red herrings or total red flag. Mm -hmm. At about... Noon on August 10th, 1991, housekeeping staff discovered Casalero naked in the bathtub of room 517. Sorry, Mike Looney was in the room next to 517. Okay. His wrists had been slashed. <gasps> there were three or four wounds on his right wrist and seven or eight on his left. So right there. Uh, just, yeah. That, over, like, yeah. It's like over. That's it, like, yeah. Blood was splattered on the bathroom wall and floor. So again, there is no way that this is a suicide. According, unless he hit something, like. Oh, wow. yeah, he was on like, assignment for Time Magazine at this time. Like, yes, and he had a book. So like, the thing so is, he, he wouldn't be in a suicidal yeah. position. His yeah. life's work was literally like. Yeah, at his about fingertips. To so be he wasn't just released. somebody who was just obsessed with this randomly and wasn't making a living off of this. Correct. He was assigned by. Time to do an article. And then he was trying, he was trying to sell his book. And. Once he wrote this article, if Time Magazine had published it, people would be like, I want to know more. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because so he had, this is he, like... Had, had he already published the book? It just he hadn't sold it to anybody? He was writing it. In the process of writing. Yeah. Okay. So, like, he, and he definitely wouldn't have killed himself if he hadn't even finished it yet. Exactly. The scene, they said, was so gruesome that one of the housekeepers fainted when yeah. she saw it. Under Casalero's body... Paramedics found an empty Milwaukee beer can. A one beer can. One beer can, which is so weird. Two white plastic liner trash bags. Under well, his body in the go. bathtub? Under his body in the bathtub. So someone killed him and then was planning to move him, but then was like, I can't I, yeah. do this. And a single edge razor blade. Ooh, which there, they probably did after the fact. Right. Why wouldn't they take the trash bags in the beer can? It's just this they might the have. Thing but the I've thing is, heard. is maybe that they got they they cut him and there's blood all over it and they forgot about it. You know, because if yeah. you're like, oh my god, this oh. is a a mess. There was a half empty wine bottle nearby. So the beer and the wine bottle. Okay, maybe after his coffee, he he went and was drinking that to write, but. It, they could oh, test that, though, right? Like, that's what you would think. Ridgeway and Vaughn, who wrote the, wrote a book later about this whole thing, um, write that nothing was placed in the bathtub drain to prevent debris from draining away, and none of the bathwater was saved. Super cover-up. Super cover-up. Because if they're not going to freaking save any of the bathwater... They're not gonna um, say like whoever oh, was called in yeah. to okay. the yeah. crime scene yes. was. Other than the gruesome scene, the hotel room was clean and orderly. There was a legal pad and pen present on the desk, and a single page had been torn from the pad and a message written on it to those who I love the most. Please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep inside that God will let me in. 
so vague. Based on the note, the absence of struggle, no sign of forced entry, and the presence of alcohol, police judged the case as a straightforward suicide. After inspecting the scene, they found four more razor blades in their envelopes in a small package. Police interviews further revealed that no one had seen or no one had seen or heard anything suspicious. But again, if Mike Looney's the next door neighbor and he's inserting himself and something's weird with that, well, yeah, no one's going to hear that. Or in hotels, you're turning up your TV so goddamn loud that you can't hear anything anyways. Martinsburg police contacted authorities in Fairfax, Virginia, who said they would notify Casalero's family. There were vague unsubstantiated rumors that the mafia was somehow involved which i think that was a red herring to throw everyone off the government scent was somehow involved and the wildest story even suggested that the undertaker was an employee of the cia this one i could get on board with hired to clean up after an agency assassination think about that one because they're saying that's the wildest story, but that's not that wild if the government and presidential people are getting researched and might be exposed for something that they did. $40 million of weapons and think to think about Iran. it, so 1991. Yeah. Same administration. Yep. The same, yep. you know, Bush. I'm sure all the same players were still involved. Completely. The, all the Republicans, nothing against Republicans, but it was the same, like you said, same administration, same, same people, people ruling yeah, the government. At the top. Yep. So even at the funeral, they, Ridgway and Vaughn, who wrote the wrote this book, um, said that the family felt engulfed by mysteries. As the ceremony drew to a close, a highly decorated military officer in U.S. Army dress reportedly arrived in a limo. Accompanied by another man in plain clothes, the military man approached the coffin just before it was lowered into the ground, laid a medal on the lid, and saluted it. What? No one recognized either man, and to this day, they have never been identified. That so, was the, like, so the only thing I would have been like, "Who are you?" But that's, heard. but that's why the family's like pissed off because they're like, so. In my mind, it could have been good people that were actually trying to... Casalero is going into the ground. He was actually trying to um, be the whistleblower for this whole big thing. Mm -hmm. This high-up military person could have either been one of his sources or someone yeah, that was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he yeah, needs yeah. to blow yeah. this yeah, yeah, the yeah. doors off of this. Right. And the plainclothes man, who knows who it, that was. I think if it was Hamilton, the guy who founded Inslaw, mm. they would have known at the at the um, funeral who that was. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm of mind that think it was somebody that was like glad that he was telling trying to tell the story yeah, for sure. but don't want to be involved because they could be killed yeah wanted to pay their respects yeah further casalero was known to have complained numerous times about threatening and unsettling phone calls directed at him often occurring late at night including those received by his ho housekeeper during his absence from the home after casalero's death was reported by several mainstream news organizations Police re-examined room 517. The adjacent room had been rented the evening of Casalero's death. One by other, none other than Mike Looney. He did not rent that room until that night. The other by an unnamed family. So that one is also weird that you can't find any more information mm -hmm. out by him. No one reported hearing anything unusual again. Wow. In January 1992, about five months after Casalero's death, Dr. Frost of the Virginia State Medical Examiner's Office performed another op autopsy. He returned a second suicide verdict. But it's a guy from Virginia, State These Medical. people are all, are all owned. Have their yes. Hands in the same. Citing blood loss as the cause of death. Well, obviously. That is, right. but that right. doesn't mean suicide. Right. 
right. Frost said that the evidence, the early stages of multiple sclerosis, and they're saying that that's why he killed himself. Did he know? No. There's nothing that says so that he, they, they he knew. He had been notified that he had that. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing present in any way that could have incapacitated. Inca oh. And also, so, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Bring in, Susie. Wouldn't he have said something about that in his note? About being sick and not being able to handle it? You would think. Yeah. Because, unfortunately, like people like Robin Williams And you know why it wasn't in his note? Because, because the person that wrote it didn't know that he had MS. You're so good. That's true. So toxicology analysis also uncovered traces that he had a ton of medicine and alcohol in his system. So again, it would falsify those documents if you, you were all yeah conspiring. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Ron Rosenbaum, the, a journalist acquaintance of Casaleros, speculated in a Vanity Fair article, which I love their article. Oh so God, I would love to so find this article because I couldn't. I didn't find it. I didn't search for it because it was too late and it's already down a million other rabbit holes, to tell the truth. That Casalero may have intended his suicide to, to appear to be murder triggered by his research in order to have others look into the story after no. his death. Oh, I like, would he, he killed himself to cause like, suspicion? No, I no. wouldn't. I don't no, either. That's like, crazy. He worked really, really hard to write this story right. and he's going to kill himself. Right. On the off chance that someone's going to take oh. notice of it and decide to take up the research. Like, right. No. It doesn't make sense. He's just going to finish it. Later investigations showed that the FBI misled Congress about investigating Casalero's death. Members of the FBI task force looking into Casalero's death questioned the conclusion of suicide and recommended further investigation. This level of doubt was especially significant because even at the time, this was December 92, it was clear that to express those views risked one's own judgment being called into question. Mm -hmm. FBI documents show that some files on Casalero are being withheld from public release, which is contradicted by the FBI saying that the files are entirely gone missing. Interesting. And that is the story of... The octopus murder. And is, is that the official name? The yeah. octopus murder. Yep. And so apparently this 43 um, episode docuseries is on YouTube now. And I I am like going to start going into it. it 43? Was, I mean, I could see why. Because it has so many tentacles. tentacles. I know. When I was but doing it, I was like, should I lot. save this? And then I was like, no, this could be another. Um, we don't do good with tentacles. I was like. We tried that I, That's what I said. I go, this is it could be it's another like Panama, Panama Papers. <laughs> so, Suze, what do we got next? Wow. All right. So, today I've got the story of the abduction of Carlina White. So, Carlina White was 19 days, days old. So, her parents had Aww. less than a month of her. When Joy White and Carl Tyson took her to the hospital in Manhattan, New York, with a fever of 104 on August 4th, 1987, she had swallowed fluid during her delivery and had an infection. A woman reportedly dressed as a nurse had comforted the parents at the hospital, oh. but was not a hospital employee. The woman, so this blows my mind, the woman had been seen around the hospital for three weeks prior to the abduction. Just hanging out in scrubs? Just hanging out. Okay, I have to jump in here. I think I know the story. In terms of strange coincidences. Because this happens to us at Declassified all, all of the, the time. time. Yeah. Synchronicities. Without even communicating on any level about what our topics were going yeah. to be, Lindsay and I both chose cases from 1991. 90. Mine involved... a child abduction kidnapping and you are also doing yeah. a kidnapping yeah that's <gasps> yeah i yeah. just had to point that out <laughs> yeah that's all carrying and i'll tell you why this one's like famous later we'll get there don't want to bury the lead you know yeah so 
first off, why are we letting the imposter that we know is an imposter talk to the parents of a sick child? Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So the baby disappears. It was the 80s, yeah. as Cheryl True. said, which wild shit. Yeah, you didn't ask questions. The, so the baby um, disappeared during the early morning between 2 and 3 a.m. when the shifts were changing. The hospital had vi- video su- surveillance, but at the time was not working. Hello, lawsuit. There was no way of knowing what the woman in white looked like, except for the description given by Joy White and Carl Tyson. The baby had been receiving intravenous antibiotics when between 2.30 a.m. and 3.55 a.m. Someone removed the IV line and abducted her. A guard... So, just to give you clarity here, the parents had gone home because they knew that she was going to be there at least overnight. Right. And I the think staff had to like, do that. You gotta go home, yeah. get your rest. Like obviously, you want to be present when you're like dealing with making decisions about your child's health. So they're like, get your rest. So they weren't home. They sorry, they were home. They're not at the hospital. The investigation, from what I've read, is fairly lackluster in terms of any viable suspects. The only suspect in the case was Lucy Brockington. She was 31. She was a 31-year-old woman who was on the police's radar for car theft and fit the description of the woman at the hospital. So they were basically like wanted to get this woman anyway, and she fit the description. So they tried to charge her. That didn't stick. But the case was the first known infant abduction from a New York hospital. A $10,000 reward was offered by the city of New York in 1987 for the return of Carlina. Flyers with the baby's pictures were distributed nationwide with no success in locating her. Her parents filed a $100 million lawsuit against the hospital in 1989. That's a lot of money in that. In 1989. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And obtained a $750,000 settlement in 1993. That's bullshit. That's a far cry. And also, that's six years later. It's six years later, and it's in the 90s, and it's so far from $100 million, so... Yeah. yeah. Oh, my sad. God. That's really sad. Carlina's parents separated the year after the abduction. Yeah. But they, they actually ended up remarrying. Aww. Yeah. A sweet story. So, fast forward from 1993 to Bridgeport, Connecticut in 2005, when a woman named Nedra Nance, who, goes, who now goes by Nettie, became pregnant, and needed her birth certificate in order to benefit from prenatal care. This was a Dateliner 2020. I saw this. So how so old was she? 2005. So this was 12. Oh, Your fuck math. math. <laughs> Your husband's a math teacher, Cheryl. So the, so the baby would have been 22, 21, something. Something in her early 20s. Oh, yeah, 87 to 2005. Yeah. yeah. So she was in her early 20s. Her mother gave her a birth certificate, which White attempted to use as proof of identi- identity so she could obtain the health insurance, but the officials told her that the document was forged. So What and, would you do in that situation? Well, uh, Nedra Nance, a.k.a. Nettie, confronted her. So Anne Petway was the woman who, or Petway, was the woman who raised Nettie, um, who I'll just now call Nettie from now yeah. on. So she broke down and admitted that she was not, Anne was not Nettie's biological mother. Was she the one that stole her? So, yes. In short, yes. Raised her as her own. But she didn't confess to that when Nettie confronted no, her. No, she I just assume. said she just said you know she, she was left like by you. She just didn't or... want you anymore. She left me. She left you with me. And any time Nettie would try to ask her any questions, she would avoid them. So she never really got any additional information. And it's just so manipulative and terrible. And so. Five years passed. She couldn't get any information from her mother. So in 2010, Nettie asked her Department of Children and Families caseworker if her DNA could be cross-referenced with some DNA database of missing children. That was smart. Uh, that was on her smart part. back then before 
ancestry and all of those other. Mm-hmm. So late at night, uh, Nettie would find herself trolling the internet for stories of missing children, missing child in 1987, or missing children in Connecticut or New Haven or whatever. So she really suspected that this wasn't just a case of. Yeah. Like, After my- she couldn't get any answers from her mother, she. Was like, the mother must something. have been weird. I feel like, <laughs> at this point, my theory is that you don't just automatically jump to, I'm a missing child. I feel like at that point, like, okay, my mother's been weird my whole life. That's true. Well, her birth That's very and true. shady, and she probably didn't have a normal upbringing, because anyone that would kidnap a child and then raise them, that's yeah. not normal. So... <laughs> She was probably oh, just immediately jumped to that conclusion. Well, it's also, like, not only the mother didn't, she could have just said she didn't have the birth certificate, but instead she had one forged. Yeah. So it's like she's yeah, trying that's to true. hide yeah, That's true. That's, that's really true, true because yeah. you would just Why say, would I, I lost it in, yeah. in a fire. Right. Something. Right. Yeah. That's anything. True too. So Nettie was looking online. She never found anything. Then Nettie went to the website for National Center for Missing Missing and Exploited Children. The site showed pictures of hundreds of kids from all over the country. For the first time, it dawned on Nettie that she could have been from anywhere, not just near Bridgeport, Connecticut. Yeah. Which, I guess you would you would kind of not really think about. No, that. because you would think small because that's what you've always known. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're like oh, shit, okay. I could have yeah. been from 50 states yeah. or other countries. Yeah, you just don't know. This The pool is so big, it's like, where do you even begin? So she saw a picture of a baby girl, a newborn who was just 19 days old when she vanished on August 4th, 1987. Nettie dragged the photo to her desktop and save it, saved it. The baby's face reminded her of her daughter, Sam and I, Ooh. and everyone told Nettie her daughter looked just like her. Did Nettie okay, know her actual crazy. birth date? I'm curious. Uh, no. You might not know that. Yeah. Okay. I don't think so, because like the, she the probably made it probably up. had a different date on it. Right? Yeah. Nettie's caseworker ultimately narrowed the search to two cases, and one of those cases was was the case of Carlino White. The forensic unit compared Nettie's baby pictures with the photo of Carlina at 19 days old, and Alan says they appeared to be a match. There was nothing to suggest that this was not Carlina. So they had, like, a distinct birthmark on the same, on the same place in their arms, which was how they kind of initially made that connection and yeah. then they did a DNA test. Birthmarks are rad yeah. for that reason. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And it's one of those things that it's actually good. Oh, I know a lot of people hate birthmarks because they feel like they're unsightly, yeah, but they're... They make you unique. They do yeah, make yeah. you unique. They're like a fingerprint. So, by anyone's estimation, no child in American history had ever been missing longer before being reunited with their parents. The only case that comes close is that of J.C. Lee Dugard, the young girl yep. abducted oh, a prisoner in California for 18 years. That was when I was little. It was huge. It's kind of sad. And After the family gets reunited, this this kind of gets really sad, actually. So the pressure from the media starts to build. And, you know, they're getting, because they're getting offers to go on Oprah and all these things. Yeah. And, Nettie's like, but I don't know these people. Like, I wasn't raised with them. They're not, they're technically my family. But, so it's like a lot of conflicting feelings, really feeling anxious. And then she started to feel guilty about the the person that raised her that she knew as her mother was being, you know, mm. tried for kidnapping. And I, I can't even imagine. Right. All the thoughts. And she's a mother herself, like a new mother herself. Yeah. Right. So another, right, exactly. So she is coming from that perspective, too. And also, who do I let into my baby's life as well? Like, this woman was my baby's grandmother. Now I have to kind of tell her that she's not. And yeah, that's... Because the baby at that's this point... is a serious like, mindfuck. it's not just like an adoption scenario. Right. It's a whole now, other... And also, the, it, she's her daughter's not a baby anymore. She's five now. At this, okay. So she's cognizant of these things Mm -hmm. so another pain point was 
the issue of a trust fund that had been set up in Nettie's name. So in by, 19, her, by, by her, by her, by her parents. So Wait. when they sued the city and they came to a settlement, they set up a trust fund in case they ever did find oh my their daughter. God. I know. As part of this, like this part of the money in the settlement, or was it? You might not know this, but or was it like a separate? Um. So this is how it goes. So they initially sued, like I said, for a hundred million. Mm-hmm. They reached the settlement in 1993 of $750,000. Each parent's share was eventually reduced to $162,600. Motherfuckers. Yeah, it's fucked up. So, was that because of taxes or just because the settlement got taken down? I don't know how taken it out. happened. Okay. Um, I'm assuming some of that was probably... Seriously, the hospital... They probably fought it or whatever. And that's the thing. It. And they probably had more money to get better, law- oh, better lawyers. Sure. Yeah. So a lot but of that's still, probably like, paying the lawyers. That is, like, a judge and jury... And it would never, how in the hell yeah. do you find so it at that point, they would probably like, defense. take your money, we'll put it in a trust fund. I'm assuming this is where this is going. We'll put the money in the trust fund for our daughter, and if she ever, if we ever get her back. Yeah, so, so they each, they agreed to put, because um, I think at this point they may not have been together, they agreed to put half of each of their shares, a total of roughly 162000 in a trust fund for Carlina. Should she return before her 21st birthday? Stop! So when the trust was liquidated in 2008... By her parents, though. By her parents. They each collected what they had put in. But of course it's like... But you would still, like... Oh, that's... Oh, it sucks, oh, but also... That's but like, also that's like, it's like, they, they, they don't they know their daughter. Kids. They have other kids. They have to support their family. And they, they have this have money. They have kids. Yeah, so they had this money. Terrible. And like, <laughs> I hate this story, Susie. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I know. Well, I thought it was like a nice reality check of, you know, even when stories end well, humans are complicated and yes. things are messy and yeah. it, it doesn't so true. it doesn't always end like it's always happy. Yeah. So it couldn't just be tied up with a bow no. that she would go back to her parents I, and all of I know. Yeah. Oh. Um, so they kind of got into, there's conflicting statements saying that the parents were like, she was mad at us that we had liquidated the funds. And, and then Nettie was like, no, I'm not mad about that. I just need my space. Like, I need to figure right. out like my life, my life. <laughs> who I am, like, her entire identity is just totally shifted. They eventually made amends with each other, and they're now in contact and have a relationship. As for Anne Petway, in February of 2012, she pleaded guilty to one count of kidnapping under a plea agreement carrying a sentencing guideline of about 10 to 12 and a half years. On July 30th, 2012, she was sentenced to um, 12 years in prison at the age of 50. Um, That's like nothing. Dude. For like fucking it's uh, it's everybody. Child. It's like just over half of... She kidnapped her for 20-something 20 20. years, and she only got 12 years in prison. So, um, so she is still in prison, but she's already served... In, yeah. Uh, what year is it now? 2019, 2019. So she'll be released in five years. And she'll be in her 60s, and she, and can, she can go on, on to live a full life. Did she have other kids? She or did. kidnap other kids? Well, she did. By no, she had, she had kids. She, so that's so when, also, what when, did they feel about when it? When Carlina was 10, she gave birth to a son, and they were raised as brother and sister. I, I read, she, I didn't go deep into this, but I think that the son has, is a paraplegic to make the... Oh my! Even was sadder. she married? Was there a father figure in the picture? Do we okay, know? probably not. Yes, there. W- mm. Well, no, um, just a baby daddy. One moment. Yes, there was a baby daddy. Okay. Yes. So Robert Nance, she had taken his last name. So Anne Petway and Robert Nance were Living sort together. of whatever yeah. together at this time of. The abduction and so Nettie has his last name or was raised with his last name however this is a real 
real great guy. Uh, he was in jail at the time that this all broke, like the story broke. He was in jail at the time on a rape charge. Oh, oh Jesus. Yeah. He uh, called Nettie because she knew he knew she'd have questions about everything, and he said that he and Anne weren't together by the time Nettie was born, and if Nettie what wasn't really his, he wouldn't have known. So they were together. Okay, I um, am completely confused so, by that statement. So it sounds like he was explaining to her, or trying to explain the fact that he knew nothing about yeah, the, kidnapping. Like, the kidnapping. Yeah. But he said he didn't know she was not his. Right. Because him and, um, so... So did she fake like, a pregnancy and she hide She went the away for a while. They think they the family. Is so she was hiding in the hospital, trying to take a baby for nine months, and then came back and was like, "Here's our baby." Yeah. yeah. Well, he, guess they weren't together, I guess. When he's like, "Yeah, it's possible that I got her pregnant." Do and do we know anything about this woman? Like, was she having she, problems conceiving? Was like what she motivated? had a miscarriage? A few, I think. She was having trouble getting pregnant. She had, a, obviously, a very disturbed childhood. Oh, she was she abused did. and everything. Okay. So she wasn't all there, mm-hmm. and obviously. Okay, yeah. Um, and had experienced trouble getting pregnant, so that was, like, her. Oh, I know that this has been a 2020 or a dayline, and I've seen it, and I think I've seen it a couple times. Because that's how I roll on the ID channel. But I couldn't remember all the details. Mm. And um, so. All right, writer. Here we go. We're in the fucks we give. Fucks that we give. So I have a really um, inspirational fuck that I give that I heard on NPR this week. And I wanted to share with you guys. So this is going to be a big shout out to the amazing young ladies from the Bronx Prep Middle School who just won the first ever NPR student podcast challenge. Cool. So this is a group of eighth grade middle school girls whose podcast that they wrote, produced, edited all on their own, won out of 5,700 entries. Wow. These girls who could have chosen any topic for their podcast could have been celebrity gossip, random topics like UFOs or Bigfoot. Not that those things are bad, but these fearless eighth graders chose to do a podcast about their periods. Nice. Wow. That's and fearless. That's amazing. Right? I, I remember in I wish gr- I had that. Oh. So I was so inspired by this and I had to I had to research it a little bit more. So they said they did it to spread knowledge and to try and remove the stigma that girls feel when they talk about having their periods. Fuck That's yes. Amazing. Yes. Can you imagine? Because in eighth grade you do care about boys. So the fact mm-hmm. that they did not even think I'm I the a boy is going to think I'm gross well, or they're not going to like me because of this. It's amazing. I just started to realize that, look, this is something that happens to all of us. Why aren't we talking why about Why are we not talking about this? Yeah. And why is it treated as such a weird thing? So they said that, you know, they wanted to talk about how even from an early when kids go through puberty... They separate the boys and the girls. They do. To talk yeah. about these to things. This day. Yes. Our boys have just gone through this recently, yes. Lindsay and I. And the boys go for one talk Mm-mm. and the girls go for another. And the boys obviously have no knowledge of what the girls are about to go through and vice right. versa. So why would the boys be empathetic? Mm-hmm. Of course it's a mystery to them. Oh, so so wait. Your school doesn't show the girls stuff too? It does, but not to the boys. So the boys... Oh, the boys got to see both at they our did. school. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I think they've changed so that. So maybe they're trying. Maybe maybe they're it's trying a little more progressive. Yeah. And, and it and it, 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 it they should be doing that, but they also should be talking to them after about yeah. it, like just not showing a movie, not just showing like, them yeah. so that they right, so that they can give it context. Like yes, your peers. Yes, and I say peers, not like no, that's great. Girls versus boys, like your peers are about to go through this. Yes, you should be. You should be sympathetic. Yes. You should understand. And so they said, you know, they all, they felt really liberated 
talking about this and you know they started to kind of uncover all of these you know bad stereotypes and things that these patterns that had been established at the school over time so for example if the girls you know were having their periods in class and they were like about to bleed through their clothes yeah, which happens all the time all the time to girls they would go up to a teacher and there was a code word. So the teachers were all would all carry, you know, pads and tampons in their in their desks. Oh, wow. But the girls could never ask openly. There right. was a school wide wow. code word that was like marshmallow. So the girls would have to And also you know, like you remember in school, like I always remember like hiding like pads in yes. my, like mm-hmm. my shirt because you don't yeah. want to be like if yeah. you take something to the bathroom at that age, then they yeah. know. Yep. Yeah. Oh, she's on her period. And, and it's would, like and they so would say the teacher's reaction when they would ask is like, Oh, okay. And it's and this very panicky. Like panicky, here you go. And so even they said when um when they decided to enter this challenge, they started to talk about the topic with their teachers. The teacher was like, Oh, that's great, you girls are doing a podcast. What's the topic? <laughs> and they said, Oh, we're we're gonna talk about periods. And the teacher's reactions were like, really? You want to do that? Why would you want to talk about that? So they even kind of uncovered the reactions that were happening as they were doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. These girls must be freaking smart. This is not right. This is part of natural, not right. And so the funniest story that I found is that, you know, when they started to then talk to the boys... Because they were fully open about right. this. Like, yeah, 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 guys, we're doing a podcast and this is what it's about. Yeah. And so it started to get the boys interested in like, oh, okay, well, if you're going to talk about this honestly, if, if we get hit in the nuts, like, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. So don't, you know, try to talk to me about periods because this is like what we have to go through. And the girls were like, okay, oh, you have me. no idea. Can imagine kicked in the nuts repeatedly for a week every month. Which is that exactly And what I said? quote, the girls said, have you ever been kicked in the nuts 24 hours a day for five days? Yeah, I don't think so. Yes. That is the exact I literally, quote. it's so funny because that is, the first thing I said to Lindsay when I came in today, she's was like, like, I have such bad and I, I was like, I have Midol and a heating pad if you need it. Yeah. So if we ever want to take a field trip to the Bronx, I oh want to meet these girls. Them. I was so inspired. So That's so, an amazing uh, one, yeah. Sharon. Yeah. Well, it. so it kind of goes off what I was going to say, which is with all the conversations surrounding women's bodies these days oh, yeah. and the laws that are trying to dictate what happens with them, that we should really be focusing on having these conversations at a young age with boys and girls alike and just destigmatizing women's bodies or people's bodies in general, talking about what they do, how they work. All those kinds of conversations will help people gain empathy for mm-hmm. someone's situation, and I think it's really important. So I agree. And it makes me feel relieved to know that that you two wonderful women and Renee are all mothers of sons that will grow up to be incredibly empathetic and respectable individuals so, towards, women, towards women. So it's funny that it kind of goes off mine, goes off of what you were just saying, is that it is hard to be a mom of a boy in this day and age, and how do you tell them what's right and wrong and I think we talked touched on this when bro dude was drinking beer on the supreme court I forget what his name oh, was going yeah, through yeah. all that and yeah, um trying to explain that but recently just trying to bring up a kid a boy at this age in this kind of world um he was he he always talks to us which I love he he's not quiet and mom and um, so at night before bed, it's usually then he was like, Oh, I have a funny story that happened today, you know, and he was talking about his buddies and one of his buddies doesn't like a girl anymore. And so in my mind, I'm going back to my fifth grade self he, and one of his friends was like, Oh, can I go tell her? Can I go tell her? And I went off. <laughs> 
And Brian and I were both standing there and Brian's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I said, no. And I was like, do you think that girl wants to hear about that? No, she doesn't. And you, you and your friends think it's funny. It's not funny. And you know what? That girl's going to remember that day for the rest of her life. Yeah. I was on the playground. Exactly who came up to her. Exactly who told her that this guy doesn't like her anymore. And poor Brayden. My poor son just <laughs> sat there and in bed staring at me like, because you were speaking. Oh my god, I, I ruined someone's life. Of women, and I've done this so many times with my boy. Oh, I'm sure. Who will innocently say something, and all of a sudden I'm on a pedestal, and they're like, "Whoa, mom! Like, yes. why are you so angry?" That's exactly. And what it's so, and it's it's so true. Like, how do you balance the information in a way? That is just like, hey, I just just want you to I know, know without yeah, and I think pat, like, I think because I I why I got so passionate and why it's because I put myself in that yes. fifth grade yeah, yeah. and yes. how vulnerable you are yes. in fifth grade and how you just start liking boys yeah. and it's really important like yeah. and it's such still the the playground thing where mm-hmm. it's like secrets and passing yeah. notes yeah. and. Yeah. Oh, a, a friend yeah. comes over and is like, that guy likes you. And it's yeah. like very... And it's also that critical time where, you know, they say that girls right around that time who are equal with boys in every yeah. way, way start to... Develop. Develop, so, but then will revert yeah. as... So it's that reviving Ophelia. I yes. don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. Yes. But it, and, and, it, and maybe the tides are changing now. We think about these girls who are like younger old and enough to yeah. talk about that is so their yes. periods. But anyway, I just oh, I know. Gosh. So it was like one of those nights <laughs> where Brayden just stared at me, and Brian's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" <laughs> and I, yeah, mom knows me. not what yeah. she he is saying right thinks now. Thinks that he ruined someone's life. Basically, and um, but this was also going back to what you said about empowered girls. This girl went home and she lives near one of Brayden's other friends and asked that friend like is that true what I heard on the playground and he goes yeah I think so and she goes I'm gonna punch him in the face tomorrow <laughs> so then I was like Empo- women empowered it's a different I, cause I, I because yeah. in fifth grade I would have been bowling yeah but so maybe the stuff that we worry about is for not. our boys, maybe they're not, it's not an issue. Right. I like to be optimistic and think it's not an issue because these girls are already fearless and bold and we'll give them a run for their money. And then, when I heard. And then I'm like, feel sad for my boy. I know. Yeah. But when I heard that, I was like, so Brayden goes, can I tell the rest of the story? And I said, yes. And then I'm like, yes. <laughs> like rooting for her. Cause I was yeah, like, yeah. that's the best answer. Yeah. I'm going to punch him. Until in the one face. of yeah. them breaks his heart someday. And then you'll be like, girls suck. I know. Oh, yeah. You don't need them anyway. That's true. So thanks for um, tuning in to another episode of Declassified. You can follow us on all the social medias, including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Declassified is with a Y. Rate, subscribe, and share with your friends. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.